Well, hey, Fellowship family, it's great to have you with us as we continue this series in the book of Jude. And I invite you to turn there with me. If you have a Bible, it's all the way at the end of your Bible, right before the book of Revelation is this one chapter, 25 verses about uh, a warning to the church. Last week, we talked about what is the message of Jude, and we talked that it was, it was a church who basically said we can have Jesus and have life our way. Have you heard that before? You can have it your way. I mean, that's sometimes the American version of Christianity that has Jesus because he helps me be the best person I can be to make my wildest dreams come true. And there's no thought of service or sacrifice. There's just what is in it for me. And Jude makes this warning and he calls us to an authentic relationship with Christ. He said, instead of living like the rest of the world, we live upward and to reflect the person of Jesus, a Christ follower is just defined by how they're following Christ. And so our lives are, are that picture of, uh, of who Jesus is in the world that we're called to. And he identified those who were really trying to sabotage the work of, of Christ in that church. He said, certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who, as he mentions, pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Here again, he just identified this is what was happening. Rather than following Christ, rather than having Christ as Lord over their lives, they were just led by their sensuality, led by sexual immorality. And whether it's the first century or the 21st century, I believe we need to hear this message. So I'm going to be speaking today, just to give you a heads up, I'm going to be speaking more boldly today because it is a bold message. Whereas last week we looked at here's a a warning and here's a danger sign, this is really a picture of what he's going to draw. It's deadly if we don't listen to this. If we keep living life on our own terms, viewing ourselves as our own curators of what is right and what is wrong, rather than being led by Jesus to reflect the glory and the beauty and the grace and the truth of Jesus, we're going to be led down a deadly path. And so we need to be people who realize to compromise with the world and to show no distinction as to what a Christ follower is, but to blend with the world is dangerous to us. It's deadly to us. So let's look at how he does this. And he's going to, just as I read this, he's going to be sharing three stories from the past. Three stories in the book of Genesis and the book of Numbers of things that have happened in the past of people who had a relationship with God, but then kind of went their own way. And what did God do? And ultimately how he's going to preach this message is kind of like I am. He's going to say, look, those people who did that in the past are very much like these people who are doing this in the church today. That which happened there can happen this time, right now. And, and it's kind of that picture of what are we learning from history? Because we, if you're in a family, you all have your stories of that family member who no one wants to be like, right? Don't be like Uncle Eddie, Okay. Don't be like him as long as you, because if you're like, see, you have your present behavior. You're acting just like Uncle Eddie. Stop being like Uncle Eddie. Well, Jude is saying that. Don't be like those who had a relationship with God, but did things their own way and went off into unbelief. Because he says, ultimately, what, when we go our own way, we ultimately will face the judgment of God. Now, 
Next week, I want to invite you back because I'm going to share a biblical perspective of the judgment of God and the wrath of God as shown in the scriptures. And a lot of people struggle with that. People who are considering faith or even people inside of faith, they struggle with how does a a loving God also judge people and is inconsistent with the character of God to both love and also also judge people. And we're going to talk about that next week. And my hope is that I can kind of equip you in the scriptures in Jude that deal with that and allow you to maybe explain that to people who are curious around you. Come back next week for that. This week, let's jump into Jude verse 5. Okay, so let's take a look at that. He says, now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Okay, where do we see this in the Bible? Well, we see this in the history of the Israelites. They were slaves in Egypt, and God raised up Moses and his brother Aaron to come in and to call them out of Egypt and into the promised land. God's twofold vision for them and promise for them is, look, I will rescue you out of the land of Egypt and I will deliver you into the promised land. Believe me, trust me, follow me. What happened is when God delivered them out of the Egyptians, he put them in the wilderness in a place where he asked 12 of their leaders, one from each of the tribes of of Israel, to go and scout out the land. These were the spies. And they all went and they looked at this land. And all their instructions were is, just give us a report of what you observe. And so they came back. They came back and they delivered this message. Ten of them stood up before the whole assembly of the Israelites and, uh, and they basically said, look, this land is incredible. It truly is this land of milk and honey. It, the, the, the cities are great there. The, the vineyards are awesome. Here's even some of the produces. They bought some of the grapes back just to show what it was like. And if you were living in the wilderness, your mouth probably watered at some of the things that they brought back. But, they said... We can't defeat them because we're like grasshoppers before their eyes. So instead of saying, God can do this, they said, we can't do this. And as a result of that, all of Israel grumbled. It says in Numbers chapter 14, all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt or would that we had died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Why did God rescue us only to leave us dead here in the wilderness? Remember, I said there were 12 spies. 10 reported that we can't do it report. Two stood up, Joshua and Caleb. They stood up and they said this. They, they basically said, if the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into the land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord. Do not fear the people of the land, for they're bread to us. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. So what does the congregation do? Ten people say, can't do it. We're like grasshoppers. Two people stand up. They're like bread to us. We'll eat them for lunch. Because God's our God. This is what the people do. Verse 10. Then all the congregation said, to stone them with stones. (laughs) But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of the meeting to all the people of Israel. In other words, God had to intervene and say, knock it off. Knock it off. Don't mess with me on this one. 
And as a result of that, that whole generation that God redeemed out of Egypt, they died in the wilderness while their children would be the one 40 years later who would be given the promised land. So that whole generation that was redeemed out of Egypt missed out. They lost out on what God had provided them. Uh, God said to them, your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness 40 years and shall suffer for your faithlessness until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. This isn't a positive and encouraging message. This is really a, oh my goodness, look at what you lost. And that's the message of Jude. Jude said, remember our history here, people, Jewish believers. Remember our history. Remember the loss caused by unbelief. They lost out on the land. They missed out on that blessing of the land. And as a result, they died in the wilderness. And the truth about this is, when you do not exercise faith, you will fall under trial. And I'm not saying that you'll lose your faith and that you can lose your faith. I believe that once you authentically put your faith and trust in Christ and turn from your sin and trust Christ to who lived and died and rose for you, you can't lose that. That's not, you know, a roller coaster. But here's the thing. If we're not exercising our faith, we will not be people of faith. That's why, we, I mean, it's so much the story of the church in America that a kid who grows up in church leaves the church when they can drive and their faith stays at 13, 14, 15 years of age. And then they go to college and someone in a secular perspective says, there is no God. That's, that's for the weak of mind and that's an ancient world which are not, has, it hasn't progressed as far as we have. We're far better off without God. And it's no, it's no question as to if we're not growing in our faith, that will fall. You basically have that moment of disassociation and unidentifying as a follower of Christ and doing life on your own. If your faith isn't exercised, it won't be practiced. It's a really important thing. If you're in junior high and senior high right now, you need, you need to be exercising your faith in the classroom, in the, in the locker rooms, in the hallways, in your relationships. I pray for my children and my grandchildren to, to, to practice their faith. And the reality is, is that that's the, that's the call of the writer of Hebrews who says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. He refers to that experience that happened when they walked away. And we too, we've been delivered out of our sin. Now we've been delivered for a life with Christ. A life of the goodness and the holiness and the righteousness of Christ, but also the grace and the mercy of Christ in our lives. You were meant to have a far greater relationship than just a 12-year-old type faith. You were meant to have God at the center of your life reflecting the beauty and the glory of Jesus. So strive for that faith. Practice that faith. Before I move on, let me ask you a quick question. What right now are you going through where you need to exercise faith? What do you need to exercise faith with? That you're tempted either to walk away from Christ or just move into a non-belief, an unbelief. Like it's hopeless. It's never going to change. They're always that. They never do this. You know that, that cycle of despair that we can get into with relationships or the position that we're in in life? 
We need to be people who are exercising faith. Right now, if I were to ask you, if you were to pray for more faith from God, what would you pray for more faith to do? Maybe you need a greater faith for your marriage. Maybe you need a greater faith for that child that turned 13 and yet don't know what to do. (laughs) And instead of being a parent who's hung up on their athletic performance, their academics, or their attitude around the house, maybe you might want to call out what you see when you see Jesus in them. Maybe you want to be people who pray for them, not just to be accepted by the world, but more to seek the eyes of Jesus in their lives. Maybe we need to be men and women who are dissatisfied in being like the rest of the world and following the way of the world and, and are more, have more of an appetite to be more like Jesus. And some of us are just bored in our walk with Christ. We're bored. We have not seen the beauty and the glory of Jesus. Why? Because we're being lured by the world and we just are okay with it. Maybe we need a wake-up that makes Jesus more refreshing to us and more beautiful to us and the song of the gospel to be something greater in us. Do you know your heavenly father loves to be asked for those gifts? He loves to give you more faith. So in the moment where you're thinking about unbelief, the moment where you're thinking about, I don't know if I can trust you on this, that's the moment you need to say, God, I don't know. Uh, I'm not trusting you in this, so I need more faith. I need more faith to trust you. Will you give me that? And your Heavenly Father will give you more faith. So many times we just don't ask because we believe into the system of the world that we define our own lives. We're the curator of what's right and best for us rather than coming under the Lordship of Jesus. Where in your life do you need to exercise faith? Okay, let's keep moving. We're going deeper. Are you with me? Oh, by the way, let me just point out. In that, in that story that, that um, Jude shares, there's also a faithful presence in the midst of that story. Remember, 10 gave the majority report. Two gave the minority. The two is the one we follow. The two is the minority report. This is what they said. Only do not rebel against the Lord. Do not fear the people of the land for their bread to us. Their protection is removed from them. The Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Can I tell you that usually the battle within me is I'm afraid. Is I'm afraid of what my life would be like if Jesus really had all of it. I am afraid to follow Jesus in this area because it might be uncomfortable. It might not be as, quote-unquote, I think, pleasurable to follow Jesus, make a difficult decision, but one that is good and best and right and loving in the moment. And we need that. We need to be people. So Jude is saying, look, out of all those people who kind of disobeyed, remember the two, be like the two, be faithful. All right, now we move on. You with me, everyone? Hello. Good. Okay. Jude 6. Now we're going deeper. Buckle up. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Again, not positive, encouraging messages here. But again, let's lean in because there's a deep lesson to know by this failure. Angels. What are angels? Who are angels? Angels are messengers from God. Angels, as you read in the Bible, are around the throne of God, worshiping him. Angels are giving report back to the throne of what's happening in this world. Although I have never uh, recognized an angel, 
the scriptures tell me there are angels at work here, okay? Uh, I got to be careful with you must be an angel, okay? But, but, but we haven't always, none of us, or some of us have not seen, most of us have not seen the actual presence of an angel, but they exist because the word of God explains this here. But it talks about a time when some angels rebelled against the authority of God and are, again, kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness. Where does this happen? Well, scholars believe one of the uh, places this happens is in Genesis chapter 6. This is the prequel, the setup for the, the flood and Noah. And it says, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and took as their wives as they choose, any they chose. So here's a picture. They came down and they were interacting in some way with humanity. And you see this pattern in the book of Genesis. Remember when Adam and Eve fell? She saw that the fruit was good. She took it and fell. Adam and Eve took what was forbidden. And here you see angels seeing, being attracted to women in the flesh and then stepping away from the authority of God and acting out, taking women to be wives. Now, this is an interesting thing. It's an interesting thing. We only get it in the Bible. But, but you get the commentary from God because it says in verse 5 that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And again, the setup for why God destroyed the world with a flood. Again, you look at this, and what Jude is saying is, look, even angels have fallen. Do not think, whatever position you are in that church, do not think that the rules don't apply to you. You can be led astray. You can buy the lie. You can walk away. And so, remember the posture of rebellion. And the posture of rebellion is that which you build the base to excuse or exercise rebellion or the lack of authority with God. And what this message is, is when you place yourself over God, you now place yourself under his judgment. And so Jude was saying, look, if even angels can fall, you can fall too. Take warning. This is deadly. And so a question I have for you before we move on is, is there a posture of rebellion in you? Now, none of us woke up this morning and came to church and said, boy, I can't wait to be a rebel today. None of us, I, I honestly believe, none of you said, boy, I really want to disobey God today. But I can tell you that there is a prequel to rebelling. And here it is in me. I'll just share. Dissatisfaction. Discontentment. It's those two things that over the course of my walk with Jesus, I've been most tempted or attracted to other alternatives outside what God has already provided for me that I move and I usually walk away. Not usually, but I mean, there are times when I walk away, when I'm led by these things. So think with me real quickly, the posture of rebellion in you. What are you discontent with? Who are you dissatisfied with? No, None of us would ever go, boy, I hope I can steal money through, through you know, um, faking a, an expense report for my company. But you know what we usually start out with? It's, I'm not paid enough. I should have gotten 
I should have got the advancement. I should have got the bonus. That other person got promoted. I should have. And we work it out, that discontentment, that dissatisfaction. I can get away with this because I deserve it. Why do we look outside of our marriages? Well, she's not doing that for me. He's insensitive for me. They make me feel young again. They make me feel respected again. And we just, through that posture of rebellion, it starts here. It starts here when you're dissatisfied and discontent. And I will tell you, if you're married, every marriage goes through it. Join the club. What do we do with that, though? With the alternatives presented to us. That posture of rebellion is something, again, God loves to be invited in on. We tend to think if I can clean up my act and if I got everything good, then then God can have me. No. In the pit, call out. Just say, God, I'm, I'm tempted in this area because I'm dissatisfied with this person or this situation. Or if even angels could fall, you could fall too. People greater than me and you have fallen. So let's be people who who are more vulnerable in our relationship with God and with our community of believers. If you have, or you're in a a community group or a smaller group of friends that know what you're struggling with and know that there's a posture there and identifies it so that the grace of God can reign in your life. So verse 9 is somewhat of a confusing verse, but hang with me, okay? Verse 9, Jude gives an illustration of a faithful angel, okay? So he, not all angels have fallen. He's going to show a faithful angel in verse 9. He says, but when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Okay, I told you we were going to kind of go deep today. Uh, I don't know fully what this passage means, but I know clearly the message it's giving to us. And that is, look, out of those angels who went astray, there there are angels who remain faithful and under the authority of God. And under a contentious time here between the archangel Michael and Satan, the archangel Michael stayed under the authority of God and didn't judge or condemn, but basically said, the Lord rebuke you. So we have an example an example of faithfulness in the midst of rebellion. And we're being called, again, stay under the lordship of Jesus in your life. Okay, now, you ready? We're going deeper, so hang with me. Verse 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding city, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued um, unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. And then he continues, um, he'll continue. But let's look at this one. This is now the picture of Sodom and Gomorrah. And as you read about that in the book of Genesis, you compare the lives of two people, Abraham and Lot. Abraham was the one who the call came, and his nephew Lot was the one who was led by his eyes. Abraham waited for the promised land. Lot looked and was visually led and lived in Sodom and Gomorrah. The problem with Sodom and Gomorrah is that they were off the hinges. They were off the hinges with immorality. Specifically, in Genesis chapter 19, it talks about two angels or two visitors who came and stayed with Lot in his home in Sodom. And it says, but before they lay down, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people uh, to the last man surrounded the house, and they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. 
And that word no in the Hebrew is literally have sex with them. Lot protested. But God judged Sodom and Gomorrah. So we get an insight into the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah at that point. And we see God's judgment in it. And um, Jude amplifies it a little bit. Look at verse 8. He says, Yet in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. Again, it's just that picture. What happened back with Sodom and Gomorrah can happen in your church if you aren't sensitive to, towards sin. And so the lesson of Jude is remember the consequence of sin. There were people who walked by Sodom and Gomorrah after God destroyed it with fire that literally it was a, what's that smell? Ah, that's Sodom and Gomorrah. <laughs> and, and it would humble them to revere the Lord and to walk in his ways. Remember the consequence of sin. When you do not take sin seriously, its power will consume you. Last week, I was very clear in ch- talking about how we live in a sexually immoral, pornified culture that objectifies women, reduces men to slaves, and destroys loving relationship. 80% in the secular world of men are exposed to porn on a weekly basis. 40% of women. It is something that's generally accepted. It is the major way people are learning about sexual intimacy is through porn. It is a multi-billion dollar industry and it devalues and desensitizes you to the grace and the goodness of God. By objectifying women, it basically says that women are out to please a man and they're, they're either... Uh, an object of desire, primarily only visually, or they're one of scorn or, or ignoring if they're not the beautiful person a man expects her to be. As a man is reduced to a slave through visual feeds and the promise of satisfaction, many of us buy that lie and it leads, it doesn't lead to just little flaws. Some of our greatest hurts have happened because we've believed the lies of a pornified culture or some of us, due to no decisions by us but by others, have been abused by it. And it destroys a loving relationship. Men and women are reticent to commit to relationship. Because we're afraid to endure. We're afraid of failure. And therefore, it's much easier to be stimulated or moved by porn. Yet, we in the church, we need far more than a just don't do it message. We need to recover and redeem God's view of it. And be clear and compelling with our children and our grandchildren as they're so being formed by culture. I read an article this week on when your child should get a phone. And the answer to that is when you want them to see porn. Because it's so prevalent. And the early exposure to porn will literally rewire a young boy's and a young girl's brain. And again, I don't say this to scare you. You're living in this. You see this. Some of you are experiencing or have experienced it. Yet, 
whether it's the first century or the 21st century. The biblical Christianity has reset and revolutionized the sexual ethic of the day. See, at the time, in the Roman time, when this book was written, Jude writing to the church, it was a Roman world that saw sex primarily as an appetite. They had a low view of it. And it's something that if you have an appetite and had a lust for, just do it. No one's hurt by it. But it moved them, especially if you were married, to move outside of that relationship. And as long as someone was of a lower social class, you could pursue them for sex. Women could not, once they were married, none. You couldn't do that, and you wouldn't want to, quote-unquote, cheap it. Again, double standard, male and female. Women were objectified. Men were enslaved by it. But biblical Christianity in the heart of God came along and had a higher view. It had a higher view of people, and it had a higher view of sex. That people have a priceless and eternal value created in the image of their creator with infinite value eternal significance. They were to be respected and dignified, not treated as eye candy. And and that sex was far more than an expression of self acting out on impulses or urges, but rather uh, something in a committed relationship between one man and one woman in the bond of marriage to express a deeper relationship, that which Christ has with the church, so that whether you were married or not, by holding to this ethic, you ultimately were preparing your life to the, for the one who loved you and gave himself for you and ultimately would wed him to the church. The church was called to show this new dynamic, this new ethic, and it was every bit as offensive in the first century as it is in the 21st century, but it's also every bit as attractive in the first century as it is in the 21st century. We must, as followers of Christ, not mess with this one in the world. It's consuming us. And if we don't talk about it, we just let... How many of us parents have actually had the talk with our kids where we shared the heart of Jesus rather than dynamics of how you do it? We need to be people who are willing to have deep and meaningful conversations with our children from the earliest of ages when they learn the differences as well as through adolescence and even to young adulthood to have conversations. Friends, we are all broken sexually. Everyone of us in this room is broken sexually. We need Jesus to fix us. We need him to rebuild us no longer forged by lust, but forged by the love of God in Christ for us. This is going to lead us to have some uncomfortable and awkward conversations. But I'm willing to have some awkward and, and, and difficult conversations so that we don't let the world reign on this one. And, and if I can just say, and I can just plead to even my friends who don't believe in God, who are atheists, they are seeing this same issue in a pornified culture and wondering, what do we do? It's way over. It's an epidemic in our culture. We need to restore it. We need to restore it, not out of anger and bitterness, although we can look at it and be angry. We need to restore it with truth and grace, knowing we're all broken, but we're trusting Jesus to fix us. So as we look at this one, is there an area of your life where you're excusing sin? 
And we talked about this from sexual immorality. I mean, there's this angle that, that it's just this harmless thing. Everybody does it. But we know, we know the bondage this puts us in. And so we need to be people who call it what it is. And we follow Jesus in this area. We need to be people who value singles who are not married, but they're holding faithfully to the hand of Jesus and bucking the system of this world. We need to be a church that welcomes people who are growing in this area, but holds on faithfully to the word of God. This isn't going to be easy, but it's something that's worth it for us. And as Jude says, look, this is deadly if we don't follow this. In the 21st century, it's deadly for us if we just relegate it and say, we're not going to talk about it. We're only going to have shiny, happy messages, and we're just going to make people feel good about themselves. No, you have to engage the garbage of this world with the truth and the glory and the grace of Jesus. And so we're going to do that. Is there an area of your life where you're excusing sin in this How much things are forming you, the culture is forming you on this. How much we need to step away to allow Jesus more control there. So in 2 Peter, as I was finishing up my study this week, I came across this passage in 2 Peter, which almost aligns with what Jude is saying here. He said, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, remember we talked about that so far, but he cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment. And if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the central conduct of the wicked, For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passions and despise authority. What is this passage in Jude's passage telling us? If God judges evil and wickedness, and he preserves those who are faithful, then he will take care of you. Follow the faithful. Pursue a faithful life with God because destruction and judgment is a real thing, and God will judge that. So we live a life of the character of Christ. We, as his his people, are people who want to follow him. These three lessons of the past are lessons We need to live in the present. Instead of walking away, hang on to the hand. When you don't understand it, when you're fearful, hang on to the hand of the one who rescued you. Hang on to Jesus. When you're thinking and discontent and dissatisfied with the way of Christ, remember, it happens to all of us. Remember that. Even angels fell. You can stand. You can contend for the faith when you're dissatisfied and discontent when you ask God to show you who you are and what you have in him. And remember the consequence of sin. That we can't do what we want to and not have God's eyes see it. That he will confront it. And you were made for far more than the vision that this world has crafted for you. So church, live. 
live with Christ at the center of your life. Would you stand with me as we close? Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word today. It hasn't always been easy to hear this message, but we needed to hear it. And we thank you that we can come to a place that is different from the world around us that can show us a grander, greater, more glorious vision for our bodies, for our hearts, for our souls than whatever this world would tempt us with. Lord, move us into a spirit of humility. Move us away from feeling self-righteous from the world and, and into having compassion for the world around us. But lead us with a greater vision than anything we could get on our own or anything that would be marketed to us that we might reflect the glory and the beauty of Jesus. It's in his name that we pray and for his glory that we live. Amen. Amen. God bless you, church.